This is Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master, creating products customers love. Get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad. Hello, product masters. Glad you are here. Today, we're talking about the journey from software developer to product manager and some of the key challenges encountered as a product manager. And this journey was made by our guest, Laurent. And Laurent, I am going to do a terrible job with your last name. Can you pronounce your <laughs> name for us? Yes, yes. Lifshitjedin. So, Laurent Lifshitjedin. You, you yeah. say that much better than I, I possibly can. So, Laurent is a vice president of product at a Tel Aviv-based company called Lightrun. We'll hear a little bit more about that. And she enjoys being a mentor to new product managers. And she's really gained vast product management experience in her journey to VP of product. As we always do, we take written detailed notes for you. And we also produce a one-page action guide so you can take action on the key topics we do discuss. You'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash 351. Laurent, thank you for pronouncing your name and thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So I love getting journey stories and how people have just kind of, you know, explored life and what they've learned along the way. And your story is particularly relevant for our product master listeners, going from software developer to product manager to product VP. And I'm just kind of curious, can you get us started on how that, that journey occurred? Yeah, so I started as a developer actually in the Israeli army, in the IDF, mm -hmm. and I served in an intelligence unit and I, in a small intelligence unit and we did, you know, a lot of training on software and it actually contributed quite a lot to the Israeli tech scene later on. You know, I've Excellent. worked with a lot of these folks later on in, in their startups and in other startups and, uh, it was a very closed um, environment and like where people felt very connected. And that really pushed me into like into the world of being a software developer. I've done that for many years. Uh, tried a lot of like a different kind of, you know, programming languages and environments. And but eventually uh, I realized that I wanted to like a work more with people like be <laughs> more sociable and, and be like uh, more engaged um, with both in terms of like internal uh, stakeholders, but also with the like customers and like community. And mm -hmm. also I realized that I wanted to see the bigger picture and to really like see how it all connects and to understand the why of things. So my journey went from like, it went slowly from developer to like innovation teams and CDR research groups as I wasn't still like ready to give up um, being so connected to technology and to the code. And I felt this is like a huge value for me. Mm -hmm. But slowly I started to see the beauty of focusing on the problem space <laughs> and actually did that. I did some entrepreneurial phase and then moved like properly to product. They like proper product training at like good companies and then build the product career slowly and surely. Excellent. So I want to pull out just a few elements in there that I think are relevant. First, the, the Israel army. I don't know if all the listeners, at least my understanding is uh, if you live in Israel, you have two years of service to the army as, as part of basically growing up, right? Yeah. Once you're an adult. And I've talked to other people who have found, in a sense, I think that is what is driving part of the startup scene in Israel, um, 
that you know when we look at Silicon Valley in the United States, there is an awful lot of startup activity going on in your country, and it has quite the reputation now. And when I talk to people, a lot of them tie it back to their experience in the army. I don't know if that was. It sounds like that was true for you for what you just said. Can you describe that a little bit more? Yeah, it's very close collaboration, and you're you're very mm-hmm. privileged when you get to this specific unit. Like you actually get to work on very exciting and super important, obviously confidential, that make a huge impact. And you're just a kid, like you're 18, you're, you're uh, dedicated and, uh, and you know what you're doing and you're being trained properly to, to do that. But, but then again, it's a lot of responsibility. And I think it really shapes people being guarded with this much uh, responsibility and also getting like great resources for learning. And getting, it's actually a lot about the network effect. In Israel, we're very fortunate. Those of us who went to these uh, specific army units, we have a really good community, even in the civilian world. And we collaborate quite a lot and even, you know, consult each other and pull each other into other companies. There are many people in the Israeli tech industry who didn't come from, you know, this unit, who did combat training or did very interesting things in the army, but I think that the army, it's not just being a developer in the army, like it gives you a lot in terms of even for being an entrepreneur or, you know, taking on more, even if you didn't come from this specific intelligence unit. Yeah, I've heard people talk about it being, I don't have army experience per se, how the U.S. works uh, largely from what I've seen on uh, TV movies, right? Which I don't know how, how representative that is. And some friends <laughs> I've talked to about their experience. And, and boot camp sounds, if you're joining the army, sounds a lot like you're getting yelled in your face often and you're following instructions. And I don't know what it is there, but I've heard people talk about it being a very collaborative experience and that they're encouraged to share ideas and generate ideas together. And you, you said the network, right? That's much more collaborative and generating ideas together. Yeah, it's it's really, it's both like a very empowering uh, experience. It's also very humbling, both in terms of like the responsibilities that you have during the service, but also because like you, you develop a really important piece of code, like uh, during the first uh, half of the day, and then you go and wash dishes for like the entire base <laughs> for the second half, or like guard, like take your Uzi and guard, like back then it was, mm-hmm. I think, Uzis. But I mean, it, it's a different kind of experience. I also did like an army class of many months of like, uh, uh, even when I was still a civilian before I officially recruited, uh, I was recruited. So I did an army class of uh, studying from, I think it was 8 a.m. to midnight, sometimes 1 a.m., like without a lot of breaks as a training for like studying the relevant uh, materials. So it's very demanding. It, it, but it brings you very uh, close together with the people that you work with. And then yeah. it goes on, like these shared experiences and responsibilities t- uh, go on to like when you're much older and part of the tech industry. Yeah. Having those shared experiences are very powerful. And as you shared and uh, have others share, um, really formative in their development, right? When it comes to collaboration, when it comes to work ethic, when it comes to responsibility, and, and also having to solve problems. So let me move on to the elements of the journey that you discussed, going from developer being really very interested and attached to the technology to now wanting to explore external stakeholders some, and then developing more of a focus on the problem space, you said. What was happening that took you from, I really like developing code, to I want to better understand why the customers want this? So I think I think it was first, like, let's be honest, it was a process. You mature, mm-hmm. uh, 
at you know from my personal experience i went through also growing up as a person i've had kids you know started looking at the world uh differently as as time went on but i think there was a specific moment at one of the startups that i worked at it was a very very innovative israeli startup i worked at for like two and a half years until it closed and he tried to reinvent like a, a mobile phone like reinvent that space and it had amazing people and it didn't work but it was one of the most you know like popular and hyped companies uh, in the country and i felt very privileged to work there but when we were working there the whole r&d team and there were amazing group of people um we felt that we really like we we had a lot of questions about how it's going to be like validated in the market like where this is going why we're doing that we obviously thought that we knew better in terms of how it would work but you know everyone thinks that they know better it doesn't mean like it's very easy to judge when when you're not the one in charge of making these decisions and and it's not necessarily the things would have ended differently but i think that this company it it wasn't just me like a lot of people who worked there really went on to entrepreneurship and like founded quite a lot of the startups in the current israeli tech scene hmm. and it's known it's a known thing that like this startup created like when it closed it created like tons of other startups and i think that people were super excited about the opportunity to do something big but they also wanted to make an impact and i think that i wanted to understand why i wanted to better understand how the research was made how customers would approach and and i think that it started like bubbling there and and the next job that i took when the company officially closed i waited until it closed but the next job that i took was in an innovation team so i wasn't ready <laughs> to give up the developer thing like the developer persona that i still had but i wanted to work in like a specific innovation team which invented the next company the next uh, company product and we actually did a lot of like pcs and innovative ideas and then like moved it to the r&d and it was very exciting so i think this is how it started <laughs> mhm yeah and in that innovation team what was the customer element of that work i don't know if you were doing you know like like we can think about innovation as we get ideas from all over the place i tend to want to get ideas from the customer and explore the problem more i don't know if that was connected at that point or not but but that's often what product yeah. managers care about and what you should set about too right well, let's understand our customers better yeah so i think it was a unique team it was a lot about software expert i was also like a ux expert there like i did a lot of ux and started really loving that element as well like kept adding mm -hmm. to the skill for product person but we also had like an analyst uh, on the team and like a sales connected representative there and we tried a lot of our products and like were sent to conferences and and like taken on by a lot of uh, it was like a homeland security company so it's a bit different in terms of like the the customers that can you know you can validate that with but it was done sometimes confidentially and sometimes like uh, but but it was very it was validated like all these concepts were very much uh, you know in close contact with specific customers Excellent. it was very exciting yeah i'll bore you just for a moment with part of my story you know i was an electrical engineer joined a company that turned into a software development company after a while and wasn't particularly good at software development i i i tried my best and struggled some and knew enough just to be dangerous but i was really good at talking to, with customers and a few things lined up and i got sent out to spend time with basically a, an intelligence team right that was new in the group of the military and my job was to just hang out with them for a week 
because I was going to be demonstrating a system that another company was building, you know, in a couple weeks, actually. And by hanging out with them for a week, I learned what they cared about, right? And what their problem was and what they were tasked with trying to accomplish. And this other company fell through that was supposed to be developing a, a prototype for them. And thankfully, with some help from programmers back at home, where, where our office was, and me remote with them, over the weekend, I threw together this prototype of what looked like it could be a working system based on everything I had learned from that they needed. And that became a large program right afterwards. And it was that experience of now I would think of it as ethnography, doing these user observations, but just living in their shoes for a while that got me really excited about, oh, we can develop something that solves problems for them. And I never had that experience before being that close to customers and thinking about developing software in that way. That's the most, yeah, I think it's the most important thing. I also see it like even today, I mean, we can get to it in other parts of the discussion, but actually going on these calls with the customers it's about understanding like the underlying needs and, and like really understanding the workflows and how they work in the day to day and which tools they use and, and like really, you know, be a shadow of, of trying to see like how they, how they would do something specific even before offering <laughs> a solution that you think, you know, would work best. Right. Considering what they said, it's, it's more about what they need. So let's explore that since we're talking about a bit. Customer calls, getting information from customers. How have you done that? Do you have an, an example? I don't know if you're out with them physically, if you're setting up Zoom-type meetings. How are you getting insights? So there, I think it works differently in, like, in different companies. Like It's the same way that like a product manager does a slightly different role in, in different companies and also like measured differently and, 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 and you know, but I've found both calls um, in some cases in the previous company that I worked at and in Lightrun as well. We have Slack channels with the customers. Hmm. Like we actually interact with them on a daily basis. They feel so free <laughs> in like stating observations about our product and about things that they encounter. And it's almost like a fluent ongoing conversation. Uh, mm -hmm. When you can drill down with a specific developer on, you know, what happened here? Okay, so why did you have this aha moment? Do you want to jump on a quick call to, to dive specifically into that, you know, revelation? So there are many ways to communicate with them. Customer interviews are great. In other companies, I also went, even as a product manager, I even went on sales calls, not just with mm -hmm. customers, but also with prospects. And... And represented, you know, some of both, you know, showed, sometimes showed them the roadmap, but also showed like the competitive angles and was able to talk about the differentiation that we had. But doing that, like just being on the call, um, I gained more and more insight into what our prospects were looking for, even before, you know, there were official customers. And, and with customers themselves, uh, I mentioned the Slack channels and our developers, like being there, answering, building the relationships with the developers who are our customers, but, you know, it's also turning them into design partners. Like we work with startups, some, you know, early stage ones, but it can also be like an enterprise who are willing to be design partners. We try all our features, like they get the first, like the first pick of everything and, and they get to be beta testers of everything. And, and mm -hmm. we work closely with the right expectations in mind. And when you build like an open relationship like that, you, you tend, from my experience, to get a lot of like tons of value. 
Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of good value in there. Hopefully product managers, you picked up on all that, right? Slack channels to have open communications, ad hoc, all the time in real time with customers, asking them to jump on a call. I, I assume that's a web meeting. It might be an actual phone call, but I, I very much appreciate the value that video can add if we're doing things remote to learn more. Going out with sales at times because you hear the customer perspective in a sales context, and that's really useful as well. And formally having some kind of program to turn customers into design partners. In the past, I've called them you know, like a customer panel or you know, some kind of customer advocacy group. Routinely, periodically go, maybe once a quarter, to to this group and talk about the problems that they've been having, what we're working on now, so they feel like they're getting some value by being part of this group and responding to what they're asking. In all this, I think sometimes we talk about this and it's easy for us to hear in our brain like, oh, you just listen to what the customer wants and you do that. And that's useful at times, but it can also be misleading, right? Because customers are trying to design their own solution to their problem. And I'm curious if you have an example of maybe a time where, you know, one of your developers was on the Slack channel and something came in and they jumped on the web meeting to try to explore deeper. Well, why are you asking about that feature, right? What's the underlining problem, right? Trying to get to that real need as opposed to, just acting on the solution that the customer is asking for, which might not really be the best thing for them. I think there are many, many small examples of how, I mean, they would say, let me think about something specific. Let me pause for a minute. Like many times you can solve uh, customer pain by, you know, doing something very, very, very simple. We had customers that were Asking for great, you know, interfaces and features and, and like having, you know, things for mass um, actions. And, and you could solve that with just providing them an API access for starters or something like that. Like sometimes you can really build things. You do that always as a product manager. You build things in stages. So you can always try to, to deliver a quick win for them and then really have the time to explore like what would be the best solution to them and like really define that feature. I I have another example and I'm rephrasing here that maybe for a section for when executives or management, you get a lot of, as a product manager, you get a lot of requests. You get requests from customers, you get requests uh, from sales teams for the prospect, you get requests from the community, you get requests from Senior leadership from the CEO, from founders, everyone has an opinion in our world of developer tools. Like even the developers want to add shiny new features to the product and they're like, they're users. We, you know, there's the dog footing there. They're users, they're using the product, even, and even though they're also the persona and, and you, you'll swamp. So there are different kinds of like processes and approaches. For that, when we can discuss that in a bit of like how to juggle everything together. But a specific example that I can give is for like trade-offs and for specific requests. I've had a request from, from the executive team for a specific feature, which would resonate very well with the company's differentiation. It was in previous company for very good with our differentiation. And it was very innovative. It was actually a great feature. And it was actually mentioned by customers. So this is an example of something which was requested also, not just by the executive team, but by customers and by the community. And I mean, it seemed like the, the right thing to do. 
So when like diving into that, and I went on a lot, a lot of customer calls because you can't just, you know, jump on any, it was a major feature. And even though it seemed like the perfect thing for the company, like th this has to be validated. But when you dived um, more deep into the use cases, like the daily use cases, you realize that they all said, this is amazing. I would use that. Even the ones that didn't request for that, they said, oh, I would definitely use that. But it wasn't enough. Like you had to dive, like the same way you did with the group there that you lived with them and, and watched them like on a daily basis. So in here, like we had to understand which other tools they're using, which integrations they have, what's their workflow. And when I realized the, the full picture for some companies and like mapped the, the tech stack and the integrations and everything, I realized that they would want to use this feature, but it would require a lot of education at the beginning. And, and we like, you, you measure everything. We can talk about that in a bit, but you obviously measure everything according to company goals. So this sort served like the, one of the high level company goals. But, but it really like clashed with the other of like growing, like having a certain percentage of growth for a specific product. So I had to take a really rough decision and actually <laughs> give up the amazing innovative feature that came from both executives and, and the customers and build something very similar to what other companies had in the market as a start. It didn't mean that I would give up that approach, but it meant that they had to start uh, with something which would make the product super sticky for them. And and by doing that, we actually saw an amazing usage. Like I always, you know, obviously backed it with data and research and everything. Like it wasn't just talking to these customers. But when we started that, it opened up new options, new integration channels. The usage was crazy. And then we could focus on the other ones. So sometimes you have to make the less popular decisions uh, even when it's not just your company's executive, but even the customers that ask for the new shiny ones in order to get there. Yeah, that's a big challenge. And I appreciate you diving into that example with us because sometimes we, we hear, well, we want to get feedback from customers. And sometimes that does come down to just, well, the customer asked for this, so we do that. But that's not always wise, right? I think over time, we have a better appreciation for the problem they're solving. We we can be in their shoes in some sense and really have empathy for them. And it's easier to make some of those decisions. But exploring the problem more deeply like you did, understanding the workflow that was needed and recognizing the, the training that would be needed to actually get people using this gives us that bigger picture to know if we should really pursue this or not. So that was excellent. I want to ask you about when you do have these conflicting requests, right, and kind of this area of prioritizing features. Let me first do a sponsor ad, which is the Rapid Product Mastery Experience the RPM experience. This is a journey that I take uh, groups of product managers on and product teams and sometimes uh, directors. And Over the course of nine weeks, we meet for an hour and 15 minutes a week, and they learn a strong, holistic foundation of product management. They tend to change how they interact and talk with each other. Collaboration really improves, and they build a lot of trust and break down some barriers and walls. And they gain a, a strong sense of the customer and appreciating the customer and the work that they do. And often see teams starting more with customer discussions than they do maybe about uh, specifications and engineering details and the like. And you noted in your journey that at some point you went from this you know, innovation team moving into product management and you got some formal product management education. A lot of people doing product work 
haven't had the opportunity to get that product management education yet. And that is one reason why companies uh, pursue the RPM experience to create this foundation, get everyone on the same page and moving together. And we really see performance improve. We see their work get faster and they're able to deliver product to successful products to the market more quickly. For anyone that's listening that wants to check this out, the RPM experience, you go to productmasterynow.com slash RPM and we can schedule time to uh, talk further. So prioritization, Laron, how do you then deal, you know, in this example, there's mm-hmm. executives that want a feature, there's customers talking about features, you get ideas from lots of places. How do you decide where to spend the time with the team? Okay, so there's like the bigger picture and then there's like the ongoing thing and discussions. So when, when you start with building like a roadmap, a strategic roadmap with a top-down approach, you always like you... You do that, you know, in a yearly basis, you revisit it like we revisit it every six months at least and, and see that we're aligned on everything. So it's about defining the company's goals and focusing on specific goals that the company has. It's not just a product. And then it's about seeing how you actually get to like to complete these goals, like throughout different, you know, directions and channels. And then you drive, you know, the, the product areas and features, you know, from that. Like you do a top-down analysis. So during this process, I have to say that if you first involve everyone, like you have to involve everyone, like all the stakeholders, the management, like the, all the execs and, and, you know, and sales and other departments, and you reiterate that and you collect all the customer feedback and everything, then first you get a roadmap that's, you know, done and revisited all the time that really Make sure that every feature that you have reflects, like, aligns with a goal, like a high-level goal of the company. So that's, like, the, ba- the basic thing. This doesn't mean <laughs> that you're not going to get a lot of requests from customers and, you know, from sales or from ex- even executives saying, you know, look, there is a market trend there, like, something is shifting. I know that we have this roadmap, but, but let's, let's, you know, check this out. So there are different kinds of... First, like for ongoing features and everything, there is like you do the conversation with customers for validating, you collect data. We at Lightroom, by the way, have a BI person from like a very early stage to have like visibility throughout the company and align everyone on like the big questions that you want to ask. So it's always about data and transparency and visibility and, and make sure that everything is backed. But when you go through like the, the ongoing thing, you can use different uh, frameworks and, and models. And there's always the simple, like for the daily thing of features, the simple, you know, value versus effort thing. There's like, there are more complex. I've seen in the Israeli industry, like several models, like the Kano model of like different kinds of, of features, like the basic one. And I've seen the rice model quite a bit, like coming up quite a bit in discussions for like the rich and the impact and the confidence that you have and, and seeing that versus the effort, it's like different calculations. But ultimately, like you can do your own scoring system and you can take the top and like reiterate. But it's also just about validating that, you know, with surveys, with, you know, uh, the interviews following NPS scores. And, and I mean... It's all engaging with the community through channels. Like you can validate that in a lot of ways. And for if you have requests coming, like like specific situations, when you have a company executive coming up with a specific request that this is the most important thing, and now we're going to work on that, no matter what you know the roadmap says. Not that they're doing that, but 
Hypothetically, you can always try to understand like where this is coming from and assuming that everything you have on the roadmap and on the plans is aligned with the company's goals. Mm-hmm. You have to see if they're saying that actually we're not focusing on and, and what we're missing here. Uh, so first, you have to understand the thought process and show them, I mean, how you've how you've done your research and what the data says and how you'll validate their uh, new idea. Like how, what you would do right now to, to show the value and how you would check that out. But I mean, this is one stage and being data driven there, but it's also about how you'll validate their, their idea, but it's also like, what would be the cost of it? Like you have to show, um, the company exec that's asking for that, you know, whether it's like a CEO, a founder, any, anyone in the executive team, like what would be left out? Right. And which goals currently like clash and what would be the price? And you have to be very like specific on what could potentially be the price there and what the company will lose by doing that and, and show like a clear track and of how you'll validate and try to minimize that if we go for that. So that's my take. Yeah, clearly, if we're saying yes to some features, we're saying no to many others. And that takes courage to do so. It takes an understanding of the customers and our internal stakeholders as well, their needs. But starting with the goals, I like this framework that you shared with us, right? So starting with the organizational goals, uh, using those goals to identify work that we might do to accomplish those goals, leading to a product roadmap, and then iterating this, right, with those stakeholders again, and taking account of market forces, right? I, I do not like roadmaps that lock us in that we say, okay, here's the commitment for quarter three, when in quarter two, the market changes terribly, then we need to update the work that we're doing as well. And and you mentioned there's a number of tools to help us with the specific prioritization. I've always used some kind of score scorecard tool, right, where we're scoring features, maybe based on uh, value to the business, the technical feasibility, the value to the customer, that sort of thing. And we're going to get into this in a future episode. So listeners that want to know more about Rice and Canu and and the like, we'll dive into that later. This is all all been very helpful, Laron. Really appreciate the information. As listeners know, we love an innovation quote around here. What do you have for us and what does it mean to you? Okay, so I think there are many, like there are different versions to the quote that I'm going to use. And I think it started even from Einstein, but I like the way that it is phrased here. It's by Pete Seeger, is a product director at DocuSign or back then. It mm-hmm. says, any damn fool can make something complex, but it takes a genius to make something simple. So it's always true. It's true for any product. We all know that. We've all been there and we've seen what succeeded like throughout uh, our career. Specifically with uh, developers, like with DevTools, what I'm, we're doing right now, like at Lightrun, this is very much of the approach that we in terms of the persona and what we're building, we have to, and we're like working very hard on being a developer native and using like integrating with our current environments and workflows. As we said, like, as we both said, like working with the workflows that people have and making it super easy for them to work with. So, so it's a very like good approach for the, for any product, <laughs> like, yep. but for developer tools specifically, sounds developer are very much of a persona of like a no bullshit and like very, you know, into very simple and, and straightforward things, uh, which they either fall in love with or don't. And if they do, they become your best ambassadors. So we really want uh, to put an emphasis on that. Yeah. Keep it simple, stupid comes to mind, right? And I I think that was Steve Jobs' mantra as he came back to Apple is, let's keep things simple and clean. And we might solve the problem for a customer, 
But if we don't do it in a way that is simple, if it requires too much mental energy to figure out, they're going to find another solution that provides them more value because it's simpler and, and does solve the problem. So like that quilt. Thank you. I'm not aware of that version. So that's a new one to me. I appreciate mm-hmm. that. How can listeners find out more about the work that you- I would love to be involved in any community? I'm part of some Israeli communities and I'm doing some mentoring for like either Israeli developers like switching into product or like product managers at the beginning of their careers. Like I'm also involved with that, but would love to join any other community, learn from others and share my specific angle or experience that may be helpful. I can always be reached through LinkedIn, would love to connect uh, with everyone and see what I can do if it can be helpful. Excellent. I will include your LinkedIn profile, the link to that in the show notes. And uh, listeners, you can find those show notes and that one-page action guide at productmasterynow.com slash 351. Laron, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. And Product Masters, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.